Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. Even in the wealthiest country in the world, home to the richest individuals who have ever existed, homelessness continues to, well, exist. While conservatives often make a meal out of the fact that Democratic Party strongholds like New York and California have the largest populations of unhoused people, the solutions proffered by those blue state leaders can hardly be described as progressive. In this episode, I spoke with Harper's contributing editor, Wes Enzina, about New York City Mayor Eric Adams' controversial policies for the unsheltered. We also discussed Enzina's reporting in the February issue about an unconventional, effective, and community-driven solution to the problem in Philadelphia, albeit one that may not be replicable anywhere else. I'll start off by asking, you know, about your, you know, a little background about your writing. Like, how did you kind of find the homelessness beat? I grew up very poor. Um, my uncle's been homeless on and off his whole life. Um, my dad always had sort of various drifters and boarders living in our house. Um, one of my best friends was homeless in high school, then again in college, living in his car. Um, so uh, it's something that is not so unfamiliar to me. But I think between, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s and, and, and becoming an adult, things got a lot worse. Um, so in 2016, I'm, I was the editor of Mother Jones in San Francisco, and I ended up living in this 32-square-foot shack that I wrote a Harper's essay about. Um, I wasn't in any way homeless. Not I would never say that. Um, but rents were totally ridiculous and out of control. And the best thing I could really find was this, this odd little shack with no plumbing and no water, no bathroom. And at the same time, everywhere in the Bay area, tent cities had just exploded. Um, I'd gone to grad school at UC Berkeley and, and lived there uh, a prior time until 2010. And, you know, either there were homeless folks in, uh, in, in, in the Bay area, um, but nothing like it became around 2015, 2016, where, it felt to me like I, you touched down in the in the airport and um and you know I was suddenly sort of in uh, the the favelas of Rio or something had come to the to the bay and I think everyone who lived there had that same experience. Um, I know a lot of unhoused folks themselves who were like, yeah, well, I don't know what happened in 2015, 2016. It just got totally insane. So I've been writing this book for the last two three years, living in a homeless encampment in Oakland. Um, and really, the book is an attempt to answer the question: How did all? How did this catastrophe happen? Um, so I think that's really, that's really those two things of just growing up um, in a certain way and, and being very interested in class and inequality and poverty and sometimes making making sense of my own experiences and other times using that kind of um, the crust of my own youth to to just better understand other people's lives, but. But really, it was it was that return to California in 2016 and just seeing this enormous catastrophe that, that made me think, you know, um, this is something that seems important to write about. There's this great Walt Stegner quote I like where he says, California is like the rest of America, only more so, something like that. Um, and I think in, in, in some ways, what I saw in California was a harbinger of a problem that we've seen since then replicate itself all over the country. And so I think the reporting I've done since then on housing homelessness um, share a piece about a hotel in Sheridan in Minneapolis that kind of was turned into this utopian homeless shelter during the George Floyd uprisings that was for Harper's. Um, and then this most recent piece about squatters taking over empty buildings in Philadelphia, 
all of that emerged out of that initial experience in, in California and in answering that initial question of, of what, what the hell happened. Right. And, you know, we're both in New York right now, and there are two epicenters of homelessness in the United States, uh, you know, Los Angeles uh, and New York City. So uh, our mayor, Eric Adams, uh, <laughs> very, very interesting guy. He's taken a very aggressive approach to homelessness and policing since taking office. And could you talk through the progression of his policies, perhaps for people who don't live here or even do live here and kind of aren't aware of where we are? Because we we went from, quote, the subway enforcement campaign to involuntary removals and involuntary hospitalizations. And that's quite a that's quite a big progression. Yeah. Um I think you could say New York and, and California in some way more generally are epicenters of homelessness in America. Um, although if you measure homelessness per capita, um, a lot of places are close to LA and New York. So, you know, per percentage of the population rather than the overall number. So like San Jose or Seattle or a lot of cities in Oregon and San Francisco are all pretty close to New York city and LA. Um, and I say that just to point out that, uh, there are a lot of cities with really terrible homelessness problems. Um, and, you know, the state of California has half the country's unhoused population alone. Um, the big difference really, you know, and, and a lot of people know this, but the big difference you see between California, let's say, and in New York City is that in California, 70% of the homeless are unsheltered, depending on which city you're in. But, it, but statewide, 70% live in encampments, in RVs, that sort of thing. And in New York City, only four percent, only four percent of the unhoused um, are are unsheltered. So the rest are, are in shelters. I think in the terms of like the general perception of, and experience of residents, uh, you think New York City is is totally different than L.A. or totally different than San Francisco. Even if intellectually you know, okay, there's a lot of homeless people in New York City. You go to you know Skid Row in Los Angeles or, or the Tenderloin in San Francisco, and you think, okay, this is totally crazy. Even if since the pandemic there has been a rise in visible homelessness in New York City that everyone has, has noticed. Um, but I think because people, because people don't really, you don't really see homeless folks on the streets of New York for the most part, except, you know, in small numbers recently, or if you're old enough to remember, you know, the, the early 90s or something. I, I think a lot of New Yorkers, even sort of liberal or progressive New Yorkers, conclude that um, New York has done something right with its homeless policy. And I don't think that's the case really at all, or, or, or it's pretty arguable, um, or the least just because you don't see unhoused folks in New York. It's not evidence the problem has been solved, even remotely. And the point in time count in New York, which is the HUD does a count every year of, of the number of, of people who are homeless. It's not super accurate, but it's kind of the best metric cities have. Every city does it. So New York this year, in January 2021, there are 65,000 people sleeping in shelters in New York City. And then another 28,000 high school students and elementary school students in shelters. So, you know, you have structurally an economy and a landscape with 100,000 people who are homeless, an enormous number. And like I said, just because you don't see unhoused folks in large numbers, it's not evidence the problem's been solved. Really, it's evidence of how New York City deals with its homeless population and how it has dealt with them since the 1990s, which is criminalizing them and warehousing them in shelters on the margins of the city. Now, you can have an argument about the nature of is it better to be in a shelter is it better to be somewhere else um and i think you could there's a compelling argument certainly the problem is better controlled in new york city but it's not solved you know there are 
as, as we said, almost 100,000 people who are unhoused, and most of them are not moving into housing anytime soon. So anyway, all that's to say, I think in a sense, Eric Adams' policies, they're not really in any way a substantial deviation from New York City policy home toward the homeless since Giuliani. Um, you know, so like when Adams cleared, he made it a, a priority to clear homeless camps in January, um, or there's videos of the, of the NYPD roughing up unhoused folks in Tompkins Square Park that were on Twitter a few months ago. I mean, this is how New York City has treated the homeless for the past 30 years. Um, you know, there's, I don't, and, and there's a long complicated history here where the, the city has a constitutional mandate to house everyone, which came out of progressive efforts that, that were very well intentioned. Um, but the basic consensus now is that the, that has served as the, uh, as the, as the justification for, for, you know, again, like I said, warehousing, the, the homeless population has not really led to enormous improvements in finding permanent housing for a substantial number of, of those people. So, um, so yeah, so, I, you know, we can talk, I can go into the specifics of some of Adam's policies. Well, let's say, okay, so like, uh, let me jump into the involuntary removal stuff. So yeah, so I don't, I think Adam's policies are, are at least in spirit in, in not a deviation from New York City's policies toward the homeless for the past few decades. I think the new, the involuntary removals directive, which, you know, it's November 22, that's a new spin on things and it's troubling. So the, the involuntary removal directive basically compels police and emergency workers to involuntarily hospitalize um, people who are a danger to themselves, even if they pose no risk or harm to others, which in the past, you could only involuntarily commit someone to a hospital or elsewhere if they were, if their mental health or addiction uh, issues were leading them to pose a violent threat to others. So if they were so high, they were attacking people or they're having a, you know, a, 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 a schizophrenic breakdown that was leading them to, to attack people. But now, um, now it's it's if they're a, a harm to themselves, which a, a police officer or an emergency worker can decide on the spot and it's at their discretion, and that obviously is widens the the um, type of behavior to in a greater way. So you know, gives the police an enormous amount of power for locking up or for forcing forcibly hospitalizing an unhoused person who is not committing any crime. So I mean, this is new. Like I think this is legitimately new, even if it's in line with a, 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 a attitude toward the homeless in New York City that has been oriented around criminalization. Um, so, uh, you know, some of these people, I haven't, I haven't done myself any reporting on how the people affected by this have, have what has happened to them. I haven't really seen any good reporting. It might be too soon to, to, to be able to track it down. But some of these people are going to end up in jail. Some are going to end up in a shelter. For the most part, they're not being. Some many are going to end up in a hospital, but after the hospital, where are they going to go? Uh, jail or a shelter or back on the streets. They're not being whisked off to permanent supportive housing, for the most part, because it's full and there's not very much of it. Um, they're probably not being whisked off to long-term psychiatric care, because of the same reasons. There are very few facilities, very few beds in psychiatric care facilities that can handle this type of person, and those facilities are. are dwindling in number. I don't know the numbers in New York, but in San Francisco, the numbers for psychiatric beds have decreased um, due to due to the buildings being sold to real estate developers who can make more money doing it. So at least in some of the cases. So anyway, um, yeah, I do think there's a kind of new flavor to the to this to Adam's um, involuntary removal directive. 
and it's you know it's part of a larger nationwide trend <clears throat> toward policing cracking down on the homeless in Tennessee it's a felony now to sleep outside punish, punishable by three years in prison um, in California in September 2022 the governor Gavin Newsom signed legislation creating these care courts which which got a lot of attention at the time and the care courts are pretty similar to Adams directive although their their scope is much broader um, and it's basically the care courts act uh, it's legislation that allows courts to compel people with mental illness, substance abuse into treatment. It gives some powers to their family members to do so too. Um, so it's basically the same thing. It's, it's, it's offering authorities more power to institutionalize or force someone to go to a hospital for substance abuse or mental illness in a way that at least again, since the late sixties, we have, since we deinstitutionalized mental health facilities, these are powers that we have not had over the, over the mentally unwell or the, or the drug addicted. And in the case of the care courts, supposedly, so the care courts, you know, they compel people to go get treatment or go to a mental health facility. And supposedly with the way the reg- legislation was written, it says they'll also provide participants with supportive housing, but there is no supportive housing. That's the problem. California has failed miserably to create, nearly enough of it. Um, and the reason you have so many people who are unhoused visibly in, in California is because there isn't supportive housing. Um, so anyway, you know, an interesting thing though, like about this push for involuntary commitment that I've been noticing is it comes out of, uh, at least in part, this sort of very dubious group of people associated with the Manhattan Institute a, a conservative think tank. And their most vocal proponent is this author, Michael Schellenberger, who wrote this kind of deranged and misleading book called San Francisco, which I reviewed for the New York Times book review. And an interesting thing here is so before Christopher Rufo was on his jihad against critical race theory, he was actually associated with the Manhattan Institute and he was working on the question of housing in California and in the West Coast. He made this this wild documentary called Chaos in the Bay. And Michael Schellenberger basically takes his playbook in San Francisco from Rufo's talking points about housing, that it is, um, you know, it is a result of uh, addiction and mental illness combined with the uh, the dark triad of Machiavellian personality traits of left-wing crusaders and who are enabling the the un, the, un, the unhoused to, to kill themselves through, through drug use and mental illness. But what's interesting is that I think behind this sort of so there was this there was this intellectual move toward creating a case for things like involuntary commitment for years before we saw them in in with Eric Adams' policies in New York and with Gavin Newsom's policies in California, and the the group of thinkers really their their main thing that they're opposed to is housing first, which is you know the, even the Bush HUD administration embraced housing first, which is I think what really made them mad that a, that a Republican administration would, but you know, housing first is the idea that people should get housing and not that's not dependent on sobriety or on anything else. That that their the outcomes are the best for people who uh, are provided housing regardless of what other issues are suffering. And you know, there's been some evidence to complicate the the results of all the studies that said housing first is really effective, but for the most part, it remains the kind of best and most effective approach for finding people housing. But anyway, the point is that there is this current of thinking that the goal of which is to redefine homelessness as a mental health and addiction crisis rather than as an economic problem, um, rather than a problem economics and class uh, and, and wages and real estate. So, you know, I, I don't know, um, but it's interesting to see how in these places that are 
pretty progressive California, New York City, they're they're taking up some of these ideas. And I don't know if Adams or Newsom were influenced by Schellenberger. I suspect they were, certainly Gavin Newsom. But it's it's made these kind of moves easier um, by by at least providing an argument, however bogus, for, for why uh, things like involuntary commitment might be useful for addressing homelessness. And I think there's a public appetite for that. You know, like to be fair, I understand why people are open to some of these more police oriented or authoritarian even solutions, like like Adams Directive or the Care Courts. Because, uh, you know, a window is open because cities have totally failed to address out-of-control homelessness. People want something done. These things appear like solutions. Problem is no one who studies homelessness thinks any of this is really going to be effective. No one takes it seriously. Um, Certainly not the arguments of people like Michael Schellenberger. You know, but I think he's sort of more of a propagandist. And in many ways, he's winning in the sense that he has probably influenced actual policy in places like New York and California uh, again, that, uh, I'm speculating. I don't know that they're reading him, but but I, I think it would make sense that he is. Um, and at the very least, there's a sort of appetite for solutions, whatever they may be, given the fact that cities have, have really failed um, to solve the problem. But, you know, I can, I'm happy to, oh yeah, go. I'm happy to talk about what, what I think the problem really is. Um, if, if we, you know, if we want that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think what, you know, the, the what's really interesting if you look at the history of laws that are trying to take control or address homelessness is that you know like even the poor laws took place in England where you know they created workhouses they created poor houses that was done under you know a Whig government a sort of liberal government and you know the idea that there's this thing called the care court as opposed to court that, that you know like we're helping these people even though these solutions are not really solutions they're just moving them out of the way so that, you know, nice, nice liberals feel like this problem is being addressed and this problem is out of sight, out of mind. I mean, uh, obviously, I think there's a pretty good argument to be made that Eric Adams is actually not that liberal, Um, not really, not really that close to what we would consider like a, like a, a blue, like a very uh, progressive Democrat and his connections to the police obviously reinforce this, um, or sort of lead into maybe his his partnership with them on this particular issue, but again, it's 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 part of this larger, right. you know, history of of you know be taking taking these half measures, taking these steps that are not actually addressing the problem, and as you say, addressing like these material conditions. Homelessness is always associated with mental illness, and therefore the mentally ill maybe they don't want to get help. Let's make them get help, and it's and it's not. There's, there's no, there's no step three. There's no follow through on any of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. Like the fact is, people can't afford housing. That is the root issue uh, for people who work and live on wages. Their wages are too low. For people who live on public assistance or benefits, which is a, a lot of people who are at the, uh, you know, on the on the brink of homelessness or in danger of it. So for people who live on benefits like SSI or SSDI, those are too low. Rents and real estate costs are way too high, and they're getting higher. And nothing really or very little is being done to address either of those things. So, you know, the homelessness and housing crisis is in the broadest and most important sense. It's a problem of inequality combined with very high housing costs. There's a very good book that recently came out called Homelessness is a Housing Problem by two scholars. 
that basically compares homelessness by regional variation across the country. So it's looking at why some places have lots of homelessness and why others don't and comparing them. Um, and the findings are interesting because it takes a lot of wisdom and synthesizes it in a way that is, is a little bit new. And I, I think very, very compelling and helps parse through a lot of what is confusing about homelessness and what the causes are and why it helps to explain also why um, a lot of these other measures are, are probably not going to do all that much. So anyway, their argument is basically that only two factors, there are only two factors that really matter when we look at homelessness across the country, overall high rents and the availability of housing. So that combination of factors is sort of the deadliest combination. And it's when you see that combination of factors where you have high rates of homelessness in America. Um, so, you know, where rents are lower, fewer people are homeless, even in poor, very poor places. We might th think like, oh, yes, Detroit or uh, even Philadelphia has really, really high rates of homelessness because they're pretty poor places. But that's not true, because while there are lots of poor people in those places, housing costs are not very high. And so the, the, the risk of losing your housing is a lot lower. Uh, you know, one way to think about it is it, let's say you're, you're on the verge of being homeless and you turn to your support network and say, hey, I need, can you help me to pay my rent? And if your family, let's say, has to give you $300 to make up your rent in, you know, Cleveland, let's say, or $600, they might be able to come up with that money more easily, or a social service agency can help you find that money or your church. It's a lot easier to come up with that much money each month than let's say you live in, you know, San Francisco and you lose your housing and you need $3,000 to find a new place. So. It's, it's kind of interesting that that's one of the findings. What they also found, these two scholars found in this book, is that addiction and mental illness have basically no nothing to do with rates of homelessness in a region. If they did, the Rust Belt would have the highest rate of homelessness in the country, but it actually has the lowest. So, you know, in other words, there are a lot of addicts and people suffering mental health issues all across America, but most of them in most cities don't end up homeless as a result, or they do at much lower rates if they're not in cities with that deadly combination of high housing costs and, and housing scarcity. So, you know, we get these kind of performative solutions that really aren't going to do a whole lot in the long run if they, if they focus on addiction and mental illness, even though that's what we're visibly seeing as what seems like the tip of the iceberg of, of homelessness. But, but right, it's, you know, what, what, we, what we perceive is not always actually what's happening. We, we have an economy where there's just enormous numbers of people who barely earn enough to survive. Real estate's become incredibly expensive, especially as it's become a major asset. Yeah, a speculative asset, yes. Right, and, and but not even just speculative assets. I think that's a part of it, but it's, there's a bigger story about how real estate has just become a major asset class for, for speculative assets for hedge funds, but also just for middle-class individual homeowners. That's where you put your money in, and that the overall picture of homes as an asset has led in part to this you know, the greatest 30-year appreciation of, of home values in, in, you know, American history the last 30 years. So that kind of basic recipe of widening inequality and people who can barely earn enough to survive, whether from public assistance or their shitty jobs and enormously expensive housing, that recipe just means there's, there are people who cannot survive economically in America at present. And that's always been the case. People, there are always people who can't meet the, meet the demands of capitalism, but that's gotten a lot worse and, you know, there are only really like there's only two ways to deal with that situation, at least on the liberal conservative spectrum, is you can boost those people up with a social safety net or you can criminalize them. Those are the only options short of what we really need to do, which is much harder, which is an adjustment in these sort of larger economic factors at the root of all of this uh, inequality and in, in housing costs.
Yeah. So, you know, considering that we don't live in the perfect world, we live in a world that's on that Democrat-Republican spectrum. How could we, like, we, people, not necessarily government, address social services that, for whatever reason, are missing the mark? Like, beyond voting, like, to what extent can mutual aid or even individuals take on homelessness in a proactive way because i mean again if you get on the subway in new york they there's an announcement like their automated announcement that tells you not to give money to people who are panhandling and there's also this idea that like well you shouldn't really do that they're just going to spend it on booze like all of these nasty associations so what sort of mutual aid or even just things one person can do to just make things a little easier for somebody who is experiencing homelessness um, I do not offer this as a programmatic solution by any means, but I am very annoyed with um, the idea that it is bad to give unhoused folks money. Um, no one's life was ever made better by by having less money. Yeah, so when you see a don't give, you know, whatever the slogans are, I forget. I just think they're really, really frustrating. But um, I don't know. Solutions? Well... The, the article I just wrote about Philadelphia um, detailed at least one solution where a very, very small group of people, of activists in Philadelphia, were involved with creating two very large homeless encampments in the summer of 2020. Um, one had a couple hundred people. The other had about 50 people. And while they were living in these encampments, the activists started scoping out empty buildings that they thought they might be able to move the, the unhoused folks from the camps into these buildings as squatters. And Philadelphia has a lot of empty buildings. The, the, the Philadelphia Housing Authority and the city own an estimated 10,000 empty buildings. If you've, if you've driven around North Philadelphia, um, you know, it's, it's like Baltimore and the wire or something, you know, there's a lot of dilapidated row houses that have been abandoned for years so there was this resource kind of sitting there, and Philadelphia has a long history of squatting, um, although not on this level in any time recently. But anyway, so the activists led by this woman named Jennifer Benich, they they were scoping out all these houses and realizing a lot of them were in pretty good shape. Um, and they thought, okay, let's move people into them. And they initially they weren't sure if this was just going to be leverage against the city to, to make some other demand or if they were going to try to stay in these houses. They didn't exactly have a plan. They just knew, okay, the homeless camps are going to get evicted at some point. And we have all these empty buildings that are in good shape and we've spent the time checking them out. So they started moving people into them, first mothers and children. Uh, and then basically almost everyone from these, from these encampments. And in kind of this wild turn of events, they were able to pressure the city into giving them the city and the public in the Philadelphia housing authority into giving them 59 of these buildings and the, the PHA agreed to pay for the rehabilitation, the full professional rehabilitation of seven of these houses. So, you know, basically kind of three activists, the city just said, okay, here's 59 row houses filled with at the peak, about a hundred unhoused folks um, living in them. So, I mean, that, that, uh, that was one solution that was done by um the woman jen was homeless herself for seven years and then she, she you know she got off the streets uh and two other activists and there was a lot of other people involved but really they were the three main players who kept it going 
you know, I, I we can talk about uh, the sort of success and reproducibility of that experiment, but it, it but it's an example of you know something that could be done, and it certainly helped a lot of people in a tangible way. And the activists themselves beforehand were like, "We have no idea if this is going to work," and many times throughout the process doubted that it ever would. Um, so, so you know, I, I think structural change certainly is is what's needed. But there are some. The story in Philadelphia is. I don't know, inspiring, I think it is actually, but it's it's at least instructive of um, the ways in which if you're very smart and are, have a kind of, um, you can look at what's around you and find solutions that you that you didn't see before. And that waiting for, I, I guess you said, you know, Violet, you said that um, given that we live in this world on where we actually are constrained by the, by the limits of sort of a, a liberal conservative spectrum, then, you know, what do we do when we're constrained by that? I guess the story in Philadelphia is a pretty good example of, of people who managed to achieve something that was not, at least not fully constrained by the available options. Uh, I would say based on what I'm seeing everywhere in the country in terms of policy toward the unhoused, I have very, very little faith that really good solutions are going to come out of the current situation ever, certainly not in the next 10, 20 years. Um, Encampments may disappear, uh, but I don't think there's going to be a, a, a really uplifting or positive solutions um, anytime soon. So, so it's things like what we're seeing in Philadelphia that really don't exist on that spectrum that are probably going to be um, at least the sources of the most hope, even if they're not the largest uh, solutions. Right. I mean, you know, uh, in your, you know, in the story, you're talking through kind of the unique history of North. Philadelphia, um, you know, that kind of allowed this, you know, unique um, solution to homelessness to happen. I mean, people were successful in kind of destigmatizing homelessness, also doing things like the activists did where they're like, you don't have to pass a drug test, you don't have to do that, like, you know, removing these typical barriers to getting care that exists for for no real reason other than to have people live up to this imaginary you know idea of what a good person is right so to what extent do you feel like this land trust strategy could happen in other cities i'm torn about how how replicable this sort of project is on the one hand there are thousands probably hundreds of thousands of empty buildings in the u.s uh i talked to a lot of experts who said you know we don't no one really knows unless you go and count them individually how many vacant properties there are across the U.S. But certainly in um, in large swaths of the country that are not the West Coast and not the Northeast, um, or at least not the most expensive cities in the Northeast, there are thousands and thousands of empty buildings, which I think it's easy to forget if you're just listening to, um, you know, Matt Iglesias or something uh, uh, talk about housing, right? Like, it's easy Never if you're in New York Iglesias. to forget that there are... <laughs> right right but, but right it's easy to forget if you're on if you're uh you know in the media in new york or, or you know something that there are actually like lots of empty buildings across america so anyway there is the raw material for uh for this sort of thing of, of using empty homes to at least play a role in, in solving the housing crisis um and like we saw in philadelphia using those properties also as leverage to force city governments to change their policies because the effects in Philadelphia of, of taking over these buildings right now, there's about 50 people still housed in them. Um, and I think I forget, but they still, they have about 25 of the buildings that, um, 
they either have the deeds to or will soon have the deeds to, but they've also forced the city to change their policies in a whole variety of ways. For instance, the Philadelphia declared a moratorium on auctioning off empty properties and selling them to market rate developers. They have have done a couple programs where they are uh, rehabbing abandoned homes for low-income, primarily black families, which they wouldn't have done if they weren't pressured by the squatters, um, Jen Benich and, and her her crew, to do this. So, you know, there's sort of a ripple effect of, of doing it. Um, but on the other hand, it's tough to reproduce uh, um, because there were so many random, incidental, sort of lucky things that all had to align perfectly for this to work. First, you had the summer of 2020 with George Floyd's murder, where there was a certain political climate in the air. Um, and in Philadelphia, you had these two huge homeless encampments, um, which were putting an enormous amount of pressure on the city to clear them. And so city officials desperately wanted them gone, but did not feel due to the political climate that they could just go in and club everyone and arrest them, which they may have done in a different moment. Um, I'm sure, you know, certainly Philadelphia has a, a long history of responding precisely in that way to, to, um, to protesters. So you had this situation where there are these two giant homeless camps that the city wanted gone and felt constrained by the ways in which they could get rid of them. Then you had Jan Benich, who just sort of by force of her personality alone was able to exploit the situation and push the city into giving her all these, you know, 59 homes. Um, and, you know, everyone who met her and I witnessed this, you know, she had a certain sort of charisma and uh, struck sort of terror into people's hearts in a way that, um, you know, allowed her to really leverage the situation that other the other activists were not able to do. So you had her. Then you had Wiley Cunningham, who appears in the article, who was one of the core activists, who had bought a house for a couple thousand dollars in North Philadelphia and had spent his whole 30s rebuilding it basically from top to bottom. So he was this master handyman and he is doing all the maintenance on every single property. So the people in them have running water, they have electricity, they have, you know, sewer lines that aren't clogged, they have washers and dryers. I I tagged along with him as he was going to all the all the occupied houses and, and fixing them up. And without him, I don't know that anyone would have stayed because he was working 80 hours a week at times keeping things running. And then you also had the head of the, the, the Philadelphia Housing Authority, the CEO, this guy, Kelvin Jeremiah, who originally was just the sort of mortal enemy of Jen and the activists, um, but ended up becoming their ally. He could have stayed hostile the whole time, but he actually was sympathetic. And I just think without all of those factors, um, you know, th this for this to succeed, you kind of had to have this perfect alignment of all of those factors. Um, and I, I asked Jen, she, she passed away from COVID last year at age 36, uh, very tragically and very surprisingly, um, especially because she seemed, she was, you know, so, so vivacious and uh, kind of irrepressible. Um, but I asked her before she died, if she thought, you know, the whole thing was reproducible. And she said, yeah, in theory, absolutely. But she also said, it's such an insane amount of work that for the time being, she was really just focusing on the houses they had and the people in them and not on acquiring more houses because there still remain thousands of empty houses throughout Philadelphia. So I think that gives at least a sense of, of the amount of work involved. She thought, okay, we're at our limit with 20 something houses and we would like to expand, but given the number, you know, given that it's very few of us and we have very minimal support from the city, which in the end they did have support from the city. Um, that was kind of her her max. I do think, though, a key lesson of this, you were talking about mutual aid and 
you know, and things that we might do. I, I don't know, as someone who is very sympathetic to, to non-state solutions um, and, and mutual aid type practices, I kind of think a key lesson is you at some point need some kind of state support for this sort of thing, because the scope of the problem and the, the complications of it legally, economically, is just so great. Uh, you, you pretty much, you need allies who can support you, whether it's with funding or manpower, or maybe most importantly in the case of housing, with crafting and changing laws in your favor, because so much of housing is, is you know, is, is mediated and regulated by, a, you know, enormous and Byzantine sets of laws that isn't true in some other cases. I don't know what, but there are certain sort of areas of, of activism that I think you're going to encounter the law a little bit or have to deal with it less um, in, in some cases. But in terms of housing, especially if you're going to keep that housing and staying in it, stay in it, you have to, um, I think you need support from from people in the city government, uh, state government. I don't know what it is. But, in you know, in the case of, of um, the Philadelphia activists, Without the support of the PHA, eventually, I, I don't think, I think they probably would have lost all the houses. And they were antagonistic and they were, you know, Kelvin Jeremiah, the PHA CEO, told me one time, he was like, I appreciate, I didn't appreciate how they did it, but I appreciated what they did. Um, so, you know, he was, a, they were an enormous uh, pain in his ass uh, for, you know, much of this time, but they also pushed him and they, they sort of became allies in the end. Um, so I'll, I guess I'll mention like, you know, in, in Oakland, we were talking about positive examples or where things are being done and if it's reproducible. Uh, so there are some places that are, I think, kind of doing things in this along these lines that are, are signs that point toward perhaps um, uh, ways in which this type of solution could be could be amplified. So Carol Fife, who was one of the brains behind the Moms for Housing takeover, which was in Oakland, uh, a house that was taken over um, in 2020. Uh, and Carol Fife, who is now a councilwoman in Oakland, she was one of the kind of masterminds of that. But anyway, I know she is looking into identifying empty properties in Oakland to be part of a land trust for for low income um, low income residents. And I know she's also working on creating an agency. I believe it's for social housing, is what she calls it, an agency for social housing, which is basically reinvigorating the idea of public housing, which America's almost entirely turned away from since the '60s. Um, and she's doing so in a pretty progressive, even radical way. So I think that's one future that could be powerful is, you know, I think we might, I, I don't know, but there's a future in which we see public housing um, gain some support that it has lost uh, in, in, you know, in, in, for the last couple decades, which I think is, um, is at least part of the reason we're in the situation we're in right now. Um, again, it's, there's, there's that, that is at least an apparatus to house folks who, who can't survive in the current system. Um, and if the system doesn't change, well, you need somewhere to put them. And traditionally public housing was a place to put them, came with many, many problems. Um, but uh, but yeah, what Carol Fife is doing, I think, is, is really interesting. And again, potentially in a, a pretty progressive way. There's a, there's a homeless encampment in Oakland that is in Fife's district that is, it's supposed to be co-governed by the residents. So sort of the residents share governance and management of the of the encampment with um, people from Fife's office. So, and their idea is, you know, the sort of slogan they have is accommodation in the present, meaning accommodating the homeless who currently have nowhere to go in a way that is empowering to them rather than is oriented around criminalizing them, and then finding them housing in the future. Those are sort of the two steps of, of, of Fife's office program toward 
that was in crisis. Um, and you know what that means is is supporting rather than eradicating homeless encampments in some instances, given that there is nowhere else for those people to go. And it's a you know it's a it's a pretty tricky solution because having spent a lot of time in encampments in, in California myself um, and elsewhere in Minneapolis, I've spent time in encampments too in Philadelphia to a lesser degree. Um, you know they're they're pretty complicated, chaotic, violent places with a lot of suffering. Um, but, uh, but, you know, is it, they're probably, if you ask anyone there, they would say it's a lot, lot better than being in jail and often a lot better than being in a shelter, if that were even an option, which it's often not. So my book that I'm finishing now, which is really about one homeless encampment in Oakland, and that it's an encampment that is not supported by the government or anyone else. Like, you know, like I said, it, it, it's a messy, chaotic place with a lot of suffering, but you know, if you actually spend time in these places or spend time talking to people there, people there have agency. They have ideas about solving their own problems. Um, they don't necessarily have the resources to to act on those plans. Um, but but you know, certainly people people are. I don't think um, you know just like waiting around for somebody to come come solve their problems for them or or you know luxuriating in their in their homelessness. One of the main subjects in my book. He actually staged his own sort of takeover of a plot of land to try to set up a tiny house village. He had the plans drawn up for the houses. He had, um, you know, he had, he had, a, it was fairly well thought out. And he was like, I've been here seven years. I'm getting out of this goddamn encampment. Uh, it didn't end well for him. It didn't work out. Um, but I do think the idea that the unhoused aren't doing, any, doing anything for themselves is ridiculous. Or the idea that they're all crazy or all addicts is just wrong. And, um, you know, if you, if you really, if you, if you base your analysis of homelessness on who you see on the subway, yes, things can look one way, but if you base your analysis on actually going to the places where unhoused folks are at, um, you know, you get a very different picture and, and whether it's in Philadelphia or Minneapolis or Oakland, um, you know, people are, are struggling to get themselves off the street, sometimes in pretty creative ways, even if they're, they're messy ways. Yeah, no, and I want to I want to actually end by talking about this. And I mean, you know, to also talking about how the government has to step in. Otherwise, we're going to go back to like feudalism, right? Like there has to be the government is large and it is an apparatus. And, you know, activists have to kind of play this tricky role in negotiating with government agencies. And, you know, there are certain you know, let's say sex, I shouldn't use that, <laughs> I shouldn't use that term, but I will, you know, sex of <laughs> activism, like anarchists who maybe don't want to have anything to do, no city funding. And, you know, you, you know, you spent a lot of time following Jen around and, you know, she, you say that, you know, she's like this totally charismatic person, but she also would talk over people at meetings. She was also, she was, she was a person. She was not this perfect person. And I feel like a lot of times, and you know, in the Sheraton that you wrote about also for Harper's in South Minneapolis, that was like another kind of imperfect solution to uh, a, pro a legitimate problem. Um, and like, there are so many people on the right or the left who, who, who benefit from either leaping on, you know, leaping on those imperfections of an activist or a solution, you know, or, you know, so there are people who get upset that you mentioned the imperfections to begin with. So how do you navigate that in your writing about these radical, messy, sometimes imperfect, sometimes extremely effective, you know, solutions? Like, cause it, it makes talking about 
certain issues exceptionally difficult. And it makes it difficult to move the conversation forward if there is, you know, this waiting for somebody to fuck up in, in one way or the other, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky because I think sectarian, dogmatic attitudes make people very bad activists. They also make them pretty dull characters. So, <laughs> you know, I think I'm drawn to, to, in this kind of story, when I've written about, you know, radicals or people who are trying to sort of implement some sort of utopian scheme, I've been drawn to the people who I think are are the most, like you said, Jen was a person, are the, the ones who are the least sectarian, the least dogmatic. They often have had perhaps more complicated life experiences, or at least ones that have complicated their ideas of this is the right way to do things, this is the wrong way to do things. And so Jen was very much that. She had, you know, she had lived, lived on the streets, she had sold drugs to survive in the past, um, and she also had a sort of un- wavering moral core and a, and a anger when she thought something um you know was being done wrong to to people like her and to people she cared about um which you know was pretty much all of the all you know all of the poor in north philadelphia um so so anyway yeah jen was incredible and hilarious um and i think effective for this you know the sort of ineffable quality of just having this kind of very powerful personality but also because she could talk to people and they weren't like what the hell are you talking about or you know like this is how we have to do things so there's a video of her um stopping an eviction uh at one of the occupied houses and and it's you know she's it's an amazing video because she's just sort of bust into this house that's filled with the police and she's she's bullying and intimidating the police and, and rattling case law off to them um and i foiled the the notes from that interaction i you know i did a public records request for the for the notes that the officers had to write and there's a line in the notes where a cop when jen gets there a cop calls his superior and he's asking what to do he says that woman is that woman jen is here i don't know what to do and his <laughs> boss on the phone says jen bennett yeah his boss on the phone says jen bennett you need to leave immediately <laughs> so they you know right it's amazing and and um you know, that partly again, there was a certain personal charisma and confidence in, in sort of righteousness there. But I also think the fact that she, um, you know, was sort of a regular person and, and communicated in, in very in ways that were the same as the people she was she was um, working with, uh, you know, made her more effective. Um, and I think sometimes, like activists, whether left or right, have a different notion about the function of the press, that it's supposed to promote a movement rather than just tell the truth about it. And I think that can lead to conflicts and mistrust. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of, it can be hard to report on people who have that attitude, even if you're sympathetic to some of their aims. Um, but the way this piece actually came about is that Wiley Cunningham, who features in the article, he read the article about the Sheridan that I had written in Minneapolis and he wrote me a note and said, I thought the piece was really great. We're doing this thing in Philadelphia. Do you want to come? And I knew when he wrote me that note that he was going to be a really good interlocutor or a good Virgil who who really cared about the truth. Because the article, as you said, about the Sheridan really showed a lot of the messiness of what they were trying to do. And there were people who were mad at me about that piece, or at least who thought it was fair and true. But they also thought, I wish you never you know, it showed these parts of, of what was happening there. I mean, in that, in that hotel in Minneapolis, there was a sex trafficking ring going on. People were dying of overdoses and the activists in some way were, you know, were responsible, uh, or at least by one, in one argument, they were responsible by creating the space in which those things happened. Um, but anyway, so, so Wiley, I knew when he said, he read that article and said, Hey, come do the same thing about our, our 
uh, our utopian project, I knew he would be um, someone who really, you know, both cared about his radical political commitments, but also cared about the truth, which isn't isn't always always the case for for people who are engaged in a political experiment. Yeah, I mean, again, there has to be some acceptance that there will be failure, that there will be messiness. You know, there there cannot be this ideologically pure solution to everything because we live in the real world, unfortunately. But. Yep, unfortunately, we live in the real world. <laughs> the emphasis on unfortunately. <laughs> thank you so much for talking. This was such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Violet. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Madeline Crum, with production assistance by Ian Montgani. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.